Welcome to another episode of the Gay Bar Archive Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and today we're joined by Ian Hensel of Rattling Good Yarns Press. So welcome to the show, Ian. Well, thank you for having me. I am delighted to have you here. I am looking forward to hearing some of your stories from uh, the 1970s and, and early 80s in New York City. And um, one thing I'd like, we, we were just talking before uh, we started recording here. You had mentioned something about the, the kind of vibe and the environment of the village at that time in the early 70s. How would you describe that? What was, what was Greenwich Village like in the early 70s? Well, it was, um, it was certainly an affordable place. People could afford to live there. And it was a very colorful place. So, you know, my memories are those of, uh, in my late, se late 17, early 18, 19 memories, and then onward from that. And it was, I, I guess I could best describe the village as uh, like gay Disneyland with various attractions, you know, so just like Disneyland, you wander through and there are, you know, obviously characters and then there are the attractions you go in, you know, there are bars and various cruising spots were the attractions. So um, it, 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 I think it was an immersive experience. You know, you didn't necessarily go to a bar, although that might've been a, a destination, you went to the village. Right. I've had friends of mine tell me that, um, you know, they've been to dozens or possibly hundreds of bars in New York City, and they could probably name six of them because they were so just crammed together with nominal signage and, you know, all in the middle of a party area. And you just kind of wandered in and out of them. It wasn't necessarily, um, you know, looking for the big marquee overhead with flashing lights and saying, oh, we're going to, you know, limelight tonight. Um, a lot of the bars there were kind of what we would now call dives or holes in the wall. They were little tiny neighborhood bars, a lot of them. Oh, very much so. And remember that they were mafia bars. So my personal story or journey starts um, when I was uh, still in high school and I'd listened to a program on WBA, WBAI, which was pre-national public radio, but it was listener supported. And there was a Saturday night program, I think it was on at 10 p.m., called Out of the Slough with Charles Pitts. And he used to, he was very openly gay. And I, I learned a lot about things there. And then when I was, after high school, I ventured into the village one night and I went to Soho and I went to a dance at the uh, Gay Activist Alliance Firehouse in Soho on Worcester Street. So there was a firehouse that they rented and uh, they had a dance on Saturday night. And I think if you were a student, it was a dollar to get in. If you weren't a student and didn't have a student ID, it was $2 to get in. And the main floor was a dance floor. Um, and they had a bar. And then there was a lounge upstairs. 
And I remember going, you know, so that was my first foray. So they had started that because of the mafia run bars, the rules in mafia run bars, lest we forget that the, the Stonewall was a mafia run bar and they wanted to establish a, 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 a space that was by gay people for gay people. So that was my first foray, although that was in Soho. Uh, and, and if you think about that, you know, so that started, I think in about 72, I went there on July 21st, 1973. Not that I remember the date, but um, that was the date. And, um, and it was very exciting. And from there I met somebody and I actually had my first experience and he kind of introduced me to the village. And that's when I started uh, like my first times in, in gay bars. So when, when you first went to the village, that was also in 1973. And when you first went to the village, one thing a lot of people lose sight of, and I, I hear it misquoted all the time, uh, they act like Stonewall has, you know, this 50th, 60th anniversary, whatever, that it's been there forever. It has not. In, it was open for a couple of years, just short, until shortly after, I think, the, the riot, uh, and then closed down and became a restaurant. Um, I think first you mentioned, you mentioned Bagel And, which I think was the first incarnation. It also became a Chinese restaurant after that. So for a number of years, Stonewall wasn't even a bar at the time you were first experiencing. Oh, no, it. no. You know, and everybody thinks they're going to the Stonewall bar. It's the location of the Stonewall bar, but it isn't the Stonewall. Right. I mean, it's called the Stonewall. But I mean, let's let's, you know, let's be clear. It's on the same spot. It's the same shell. It, it's it's not the same bar. And I have friends who went to the Stonewall and I have one friend who was there the night of the riots. Uh, gay bars were not very nice. And so GAA, that was a reaction against the, the mafia. Um, so I, I never knew it was a Chinese restaurant. I only remember, I moved to Chicago in 83. So I only knew it as uh, Bagel and, and which I frequented quite often. But when one went out at that time, it was, I think, much more of a experience experience you didn't necessarily stick to one bar right and and the village had the unique distinction of as you said being kind of like a gay disney um there were a lot of of attractions and people and things to see and do right there so it wasn't like you were on an island in the middle of the pacific and that was the only gay bar or gay thing you could do you could easily walk you know two doors down and find something else or someone else to interact with it, it depends what you were looking for. I mean, you, you could street cruise. It was very easy to pick up guys on the street. Now, um, one of one of the bars ahead. that you mentioned um, in Greenwich Village that I had never heard of before, and most of the directories and listings and archives I've looked at don't even have it listed, was a place called Roadhouse. Uh, was Roadhouse one of those little kind of hole-in-the-wall dive kind of places? Kind of. I remember it had a pool table, and it was for a quote-unquote, it was, you have to remember I was on the verge of turning 18. It was a, 
what I would call an old crowd. So they were probably guys in their later 20s and 30s. <laughs> but I don't know what you would call it now. Y you know, things have become so... We, we become so like we want to pigeonhole things, but I guess it was more of a Levi's, more of a Levi's bar. So I think it was part of, it was probably more the nascent clone thing that happened a few years later when you started to have the Christopher Street clones. It was really like the guys that went there were the beginning of like the Christopher Street clone look. Uh, but it had a pool table. It was, um, you know, more of a, it was kind of like more of a tavern feel to it. And I remember being taken there by this, that was the very first bar I ever walked into. And I was taken there by this guy that I had met at uh, the GAA firehouse. Um, I, I think the bar... So I was attracted, that was a look of guys that I was really attracted to. So I was really attracted to older men. So that would be read as about 25. Um, and I liked facial hair, but those guys were not attracted to me because I looked rather young and, and very boyish. So I used to hang out at a bar called the Ninth Circle, uh, which, at one time had been a um at one time had been a uh straight bar but it was it was a chicken bar so um it was well known for that you know do you know what chicken is of course okay so for for the, those of your listeners who don't know chicken was a young guy so i was definitely chicken because you know i was about 17, 18, I looked about 14, and uh, it was frequented by chicken hawks, who were older men who, was, who were interested in younger guys. And that's, that's the bar I used to do the best in. So it, it was, um, so kind of going back, it was a, um, chicken hawks would go there to pick up young guys, and I would meet other young guys and I think also one of my friends was a priest who used to hang out there, but he was older and they had a downstairs and they had an upstairs. Yeah. If I remember correctly from my research, um, Nine Circle was also a steakhouse. It was a full restaurant, right? No, not when I was going there. It might've said that on the sign. Ah, so that's probably the previous there, incarnation when it was. Yeah. There was, there was no food when I was going there. If, if one wanted food, like if one got hungry and didn't want to go very far, we'd go up to Julius's, which was just, you know, down the street and you'd have a burger at Julius's and Julius's at the time. I mean, these are horrible terms, but Julius's was called a wrinkle room because have you heard that term? I have <laughs> because a wrinkle room was a bar that was frequented by older men but we'd go there to get to get a burger um and then go back to the ninth circle and uh julius is one of the few bars that is still operating as a gay bar in the village after all these years yeah though i've heard i don't know i've heard reports that it's not as gay as it 
once was. Like many bars, you know, we went down to New Orleans and we pre-Katrina and went to Lafitte's in exile. And when we were down there this past spring, at least every time I walked past it, it didn't seem gay at all. But yeah, I think that's part of the um, the like late 90s, early 2000s bachelorette party uh, wave that came through the gay bars. Suddenly, I think all the gay bars became the cool place for the cool chicks to have their bachelorette party before they got married. And somehow the word spread. And now all these, you know, co-eds want to stop into the gay bars and have drinks. And it kind of dilutes the environment. It was really sad. You know, I have nothing... Uh, you know, so obviously we, we need to be inclusive, but it, it, it it's, I don't know, it's just kind of sad because some of these older bars are part of our history and our institutions. And, you know, they came about because we couldn't be ourselves in other places. Right. You know, going back to 72, 73, um, you know, we just didn't have those options. And it, it, it's, it, the, these are historical places. What, you know, many of them are gone now. But that's part of the reason that I'm trying to preserve some of the memories and some of the stories, because they played such an important role in the development of our community. They made for so much of the progress that we've seen politically, um, it all started in the bars. You know, it was the bars that funded a lot of these campaigns and, and allowed people to get together and organize their causes and, and you know, set up their protest or um, whatever and get their, their groups together. We couldn't have done it without the bars because there was nowhere else, like you said, there was nowhere else for us to congregate and meet like-minded people. Yes, yes. You know, so I, I'm, you know, I don't know how younger people view things certainly the world is very the world today is very different from the world i came out in in 1973 um and you know that's where we we met each other um so i mean the ninth circle was important to me because that's where i started you know later on you know we would so we would go there but we would go to other bars i mean we used to stop in at ties on Christopher Street, um, and I always liked the men who were at ties, but you know they weren't attracted to me. Again, I just didn't meet the type that they were. You know, I wasn't the type that they were looking for. You know, guys used to stay. So there was a point where people used to stand outside the bar as well. And I remember one night, and I'm sorry because you know I'm taking whatever it is, 10 years or so of my life. And it's, it's, I'm kind of making a collage, you know, out of memories. But I remember one night I was hanging out at Ty's and I was out in front with a friend and I, I think we were drinking. And um, these two kids come down the street and they must've been two boys, 12 or 13. And they were holding hands and they were walking west on Christmas street on the opposite side of the road. There was the erotic baker, I think, was across the street. So they were walking west on Christopher Street and a guy standing next to me yelled out, hey son, don't you think you're a little young for that? And 
but you know it was uh it, it was it it was a very interesting time and place to be we we also you've probably have people probably told you about ties i imagine now i looked it up in my gay insider guide uh -huh. which i bought in 1973 for a dollar uh might have been a barnes and noble you know the dollar table and um before before this interview i looked up ties and it's not in this guide so it must have happened later the roadhouse is in it as well as the round table which i believe was like on the upper east side which was like a show bar they i think they had drag shows because i remember the guy that was kind of showed me the ropes to begin with had taken me up there as well but we used to go to ties later on uh there was um Boots and Saddle, and I almost slipped because most everybody referred to Boots and Saddles as bras and girdles. So I, I don't know that I ever heard the bar referred to as other than bras and girdles. Um, wow. But, you know, that, that at least that's everybody I knew referred to it that way. Yeah, and I've seen that published before. You're not the first person um, that has said that. So it certainly must have been a pretty common moniker for the bar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we wanted some fun, and sometimes I would just go on my own to Marie's Crisis. Have you heard of that? Yes, bar? I have. You know, the piano bar? Marie's Crisis is still there, I believe. I believe you're correct. Ties and is too, isn't it? I beg your pardon? Ties is also, isn't it? I don't know. I haven't been back to New York since about 2004. So I, I, I don't know, you know, and everything was changed. So people, people often ask me, you know, don't you get homesick for New York? And I say, yeah, of course I do. But if you've got a time machine, I get homesick for New York in 1977. Right. Not New York now, you know, the New York of my memory is, it's like any place, you know, we, we live our, you know, we end up with snapshots, you know, in our heads, but the world is moving as a motion picture and it's moved on from the snapshots that we have. So we used to go to um, Marie's Crisis. Where else did we used to go? Um, used to go to, uh, we would saunter down uh, Christopher Street heading west and we stop and so what i want to what many people i don't know if anybody's mentioned the guy who stood on the corner and it was either the corner of hudson and christopher or greenwich and christopher it might have been greenwich and christopher um he had one of those tin tv tray tables with bottles of amyl nitrate and locker room and he stood there and it was he said over and over again and i can still see and hear him in my head Amol five locker room two four five free hits and then he'd repeat it again Amol five locker room two four five free hits so i mean just amazing i think back that Amol nitrate was five dollars and two bottles of locker room you can get for five dollars so um but then we'd round the corner we'd stop in at peter rabbit sometimes has anybody mentioned peter rabbit they have not. That is not a bar that anyone has spoken about. 
Oh yeah, Peter Rabbit. Uh, that was a fun bar that tend to be more popular with uh, African American men, men of color. But we we go to Peter Rabbit. So do you know? Have you ever seen the film Outrageous? Yes. That shot in Peter Rabbit. Oh, cool. So the interior of that movie, the bar interior is, and I think it's called Jack Rabbit. They have an alternate sign, you know, and I think it's called the Jack Rabbit in the movie Outrageous, the Craig Russell movie. Uh-huh. Uh, that, but that was shot in Peter Rabbit. Oh, cool. And then we used to go further down the street was, and it gets weird here. It, you might've heard people talk about the stud I have, but you mentioned the international stud. The international stud, because it was an old, you know, the signs that would be affixed and standing out from the side of a building. It was a corner. Right. Had the sign that stuck out, you know, on the corner that said the international. So I don't know what it was before. So many of us referred to it as the international stud. And Harvey Firestein in Torch Song Trilogy uh, I remember seeing it before it was a trilogy. I went to see on Bleecker Street, it might have been at the Little Theater, a play called The International Stud, which is, um, I believe it's the first in the trilogy where he meets Ed in the back room of The International Stud. And the, the stud, well, everybody called it The International Stud, the International Stud had a back room, and that was always fun. So I used to I used to go there as well. Um, I mean, I used to go to Uncle Charlie South, but that was kind of a schlep up to the Gramercy Park area, and uh, that was more of a yuppie crowd at uh, Uncle Charlie South, as I as I remember it. Um, I used to really stick to the village more. I, I've been to the mine shaft. You've heard of the mine shaft. I have. So that was kind of like walking through the haunted mansion. <laughs> it, it was. It was. It was quite an experience. You know the spike. Although I don't have many, many memories of the spike. There was the toilet. Um, I don't think I'd ever been to the toilet. There was another bar that people used to talk about right before I left, but I'd never been there. It was uh, Alex in Wonderland. Alex? A-L-E-X? A-L-E-X. Alex in Wonderland. I don't know how long. It was like in the meatpacking area, which is now, I understand, very gentrified. You have to remember, it was the meatpacking district when you got over that way. And then you had the uh, West Side Highway. And you've heard about the trucks? Yes. So, yes. So, I used to sometimes end up at the trucks. <laughs> and, and then there were the piers. And I think I sent you a picture that I posed. A friend took of me um, at the entrance to one of the piers. I never did the piers because that was just... Too dangerous. Yeah, and I, when I saw that picture, and I'm going to show it here so people can see it, but when I looked at that picture, um, it reminded me, I came out, my first gay bar experience was in 1978. So it's not too far off from where you're, 
you know, you're speaking about. And I have an idea of, um, you know, what the mindset was back then. And, but to me, I grew up in, in Jersey. So I was about a 20 minute drive away from New York city, but it's a different world completely. When I was in high school, I had a boyfriend, um, but I didn't know it. So we were good friends and we had sexual adventures together, but we never identified as boyfriends or even knew that there was such a concept in the world. You know, I'm sure both of us in the back of our minds thought 10 or 15 years from now, we'll be married to a woman and have kids. We didn't know there was a gay world. Um, now, I'm sure being in New York City, you were exposed to it a little bit more quickly. Um, I didn't find out about it till I was in college. And um, that same boyfriend invited me. He was down in Baltimore, um, invited me to come down for a stay. And we went to um, dinner in downtown Baltimore. And then he kind of casually strolled me across the street to the hippo, um, which was opened, I think, in the early 70s in, um, in Baltimore and just closed recently. And I, well, I say recently, about five years ago. Um, so they had a good long run there. But at that time, I didn't know that there was really a gay world. And when I saw that picture of you at the piers on Christopher Street, the first thing I thought of was, oh, that kind of looks like a, um, a twink, like a, a, a gay chicken cruising for, you know, to pick somebody up in a public space. Cause that's kind of the, it happened in other cities where I live too, Atlanta at Piedmont park or whatever. Every city had a place where you went and tried to look a little, you know, give that come hither look and look a little sexy, show a little skin and find somebody to hang out with for a while. And that's exactly the vibe that brought back when I saw that picture. Um, well, um, yes. I mean, I think I also sent you the picture of me on uh, the sitting on the mailbox on Christopher Street. I think that was taken the same day. Um, mailbox? What's that? A mailbox, yeah. <laughs> on, but that's on Christopher Street. And in the background, I was looking at it yesterday. You can see gay men in the background, but that was me on a mailbox in uh sitting on a mailbox in, in Christopher Street. Uh, you know, so you talk about, you know, I found in terms of picking up guys, you know, well, first of all, my own experience. So when I went going back to the firehouse, I was actually picked up by a rabbi. And uh, which was ironic because I had been a yeshiva boy so I grew up in a somewhat orthodox family. And after the rabbi had his way with me, which happened the next day, I just like the closet door flew open. I knew what I was and who, you know, I knew who, who I was. Um, and I, I really just kind of came out, which considering you know, it was 1973. And I always tell people I came out on July 21st, 1973. <clears throat> so, but, you know, in terms of meeting guys, I really had more success in public places. I didn't have sex in public places. I shied, well, 
I suppose the back room bar is a public place, but I kind of shied away from that. But so a lot of my cruising happened on the street or in the subway, you know, where, you know, you're standing on a platform, you see a guy and you start chatting. Um, and I really kind of like street cruising and I always kid around and say, you know, I really liked catching my beef on the hoof. <laughs> that that's the midwestern farmer dream coming out because i'm sure yeah. you never experienced that in real life no no but you don't strike me as somebody who spent a day working on a farm no i i, I never have but you know other bars i used to go to what else did i used to go to i used to go to well there was a saint in later years um and that was a phenomenal experience. And their back room was upstairs in the balcony because it had been the old Fillmore East. Uh, but that was just well, when the, Am I mistaken or when the Saint first opened, wasn't it kind of an exclusive membership club that, that, that had, you know, like an annual membership fee and everything? Or was it just a general, a general gay bar? No, I can't remember. I certainly, I didn't have a membership. So I really, I really can't remember, but I do remember going there and I remember amazing, uh, the, you know, the, as a disco it was amazing and the, the Zeiss planetarium projector and you'd be dancing and all of a sudden there would be like stars splattered across the, the ceiling and you'd be dancing among stars. I mean, I was not a, a drug taker, so and I was not particularly a drinker. So, but it was even so being completely sober, it was just an amazing experience. And, you know, and, and yes, I did have sex in the balcony. Well, I think a lot of people now, a lot of the younger people uh, wouldn't understand that era because the time frame you're talking about in the mid seventies to say the mid eighties or even a little beyond in some of the big cities we suddenly had um this onset of what you would call like a super bar before that we never had that kind of concept we always had modest sized bars something we might call a larger bar that had maybe two stories and a nice sized dance floor but then when bars like the saint came along um and it's just hard to wrap your head around going into a gigantic planetarium building with a huge dome ceiling and being in there to dance it's it's um almost unfathomable and you have you know the similar concept with um the limelight turning an old church into a giant bar you have palladium which had you know 100 foot high ceilings in some of the rooms it's just crazy big bars that were kind of i think at least for me were kind of the coming of age of, oh, wow, we're not relegated to little dumpy holes in the wall anymore. We have arrived. Well, among my friends, so the limelight, or we called it the slime light, um, the, the slime light was something we never went there. And we knew a lot of people because they kind of would pick and choose who could go in. So, you know, that didn't sit well. Concurrent with the limelight there was another bar that was like a late night dance club i think it was called moonshadow but i'd never i'd never 
been there either. Um, so it, it was an interesting, uh, it was an interest. I mean, I left in 83, I left in January of 83. So my experience goes from July of 73 to January of 83, kind of a really just a, that, that 10 year, 10 year period. Um, but I mean, there were many places that we went, you know, so I said we would sometimes get a burger at Julius's a restaurant that was very gay, um, not exclusively gay, but a lot of gay clientele was on Christopher Street called Michael's Potbelly. And we'd often meet and have dinner at Michael's Potbelly. It was kind of like an omelet restaurant. It was like a little hole in the wall restaurant, but we, we'd have dinner at Michael's Potbelly. And then um, after dinner, head out to the various bars yeah and I, um, I don't think people realize i was just having a conversation um with a journalist actually from um new york i don't know if you're familiar with him but uh eric pipenberg no. who, who's written for some of the new york times um pieces and things on gay culture and things of that nature and um we were having an extensive conversation about how much has changed because back in those days um there were a lot of places, like you mentioned, that incorporated food into the gay experience. So when we talk about bars, it's not always a place where you go just to have a drink. There were very, there was a um, kind of an awakening of this concept that restaurants could also thrive by appealing to or accepting the gay clientele and allowing men to come in in a group of four or six and sit together and giggle and have dinner without being, you know, thrown out. Um, so there was a huge number, not only in New York, but in cities all around the country of gay restaurants that may or may not have been gay owned, um, but they were very gay accommodating. And, and that was something that started happening, I think, in the 70s also, as you started to see more acceptance from what we would consider mainstream business people of gay clientele, not necessarily flying a rainbow flag, which didn't exist yet, but not, you know, not saying, hey, we're gay, but being very welcoming and very accommodating, especially in neighborhoods like the village where there were so many gay people there all the time. It was almost necessary to do that. Well, you know, well, the symbol before the uh, rainbow flag was Lambda. And I think I sent you a photograph of myself at the uh, probably was the 1974 Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade, uh -huh. the rally. So just for everybody listening, the it wasn't called the Gay Pride Parade. It was a more of a political event and the 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 march it was called a march not a parade and it was before everything had become so commercialized it was called the christopher street liberation day parade and it ended with a and i think we could only walk on sixth avenue i seem to recall uh but it ended in central park and there was a rally and i think i sent you you know uh, uh, a photograph and i'm wearing a lambda Right on, on a chain. So that was the symbol before that. But restaurants, when I came out, I'm trying to remember if I ever ate there. 
uh, it might have been just once, there was one potato. Uh -huh. It was a restaurant. And there was also a little bit later, a restaurant that I did eat at, maybe just a couple of times, was called Yellow Brick Road. Now that uh, sounds like it would be a gay restaurant. It was a gay restaurant, but it was called Yellow Brick Road. Um, so, I mean, there were many more places. I mean, the bars were part of it, yeah. uh, but not, but not all of it. Um, it, it was part of a, of a, they were part of a bigger ecosystem. Of, now this uh, was more exclusive to, to um, New York City and and Greenwich Village, correct? Like if you went back to Brooklyn, it would not have been that way. You would not have had a gay environment where you would have six bars that you could walk to and gay restaurants and everything, correct? No, no. There was one, there was one gay bar in Brooklyn. I had never been to it. It was called. It was in in or about Brooklyn Heights, and Brooklyn Heights was somewhat gay, but the bar was called Gracie's Mansion. Has anybody mentioned that? No. The it only called... Gracie Mansion I ever heard of was the governor's. Yes, no, this was bar. called Gracie's Mansion. Uh, that was in Brooklyn. And then there were various cruising spots. So I grew up in Brighton Beach and at the junction of Ocean Parkway and the boardwalk, that was a cruising area that people referred to as the boards. But that was also known for a highly Eastern European Jewish population in that area too, wasn't it? It was Eastern European, it was not Russian. Okay. So it was Eastern European. So yes, if you wanted Jewish boys and Italian boys, um, the boards was the place to go. And, um, I've always wondered, I mean, and he's gone. So have, have you ever seen the boys in the band? I have. Well, they, they give Harold, you know, Harold's given a, a big, uh, monopoly blow up card of the boardwalk. Uh huh. I had always wondered if that was the boardwalk in Brooklyn. I know in the game, it's Atlantic city, right. but the boardwalk was very cruisy at ocean, both underneath the boardwalk and on the boardwalk at Ocean Parkway and uh, and the boardwalk um, where they met. That was a very cruisy area. Well, it certainly sounds like it would have been an interesting experience um, to be coming out and and kind of learning about gay life in New York City in the seventies. And I can only imagine if someone were ever to try to catalog all of the bars that existed over time um, in New York City, how extensive that list will be. I know one of your um, projects now, one of your babies, is a business called uh, Rattling Good Yarns Press, which, by the way, kudos on that because I don't know how many others there are like you out there. But to have a gay-owned, gay-operated publishing house that focuses on bringing um, all these gay stories to light, whether it's it's uh, fiction or nonfiction, you know, historical perspectives, 
uh, romance novels, whatever it is. Well, you don't do romance novels, I don't think. But not yet. Never um, seen it. But kind of embracing that whole um, gay genre of literature is amazing. And you have um, one of the reasons I learned about you personally was because of this book that you have coming out right now, which is called Last Call Chicago. And um, Rick Carlin and uh, St. Suki Delacroix have put together this book that catalogs a thousand gay bars in the last hundred years in Chicago. Now, if you extrapolate that to Manhattan, which I'm sure had many more bars, uh, that would be mind boggling. Think, I mean, because I know you had a hand in laying out every one of those pages and pasting up every one of those little images. Could you imagine doing that for New York City? Well, you know, it was a Herculean project on their part. Um, and I forget how many hundreds and hundreds, well, it's over a thousand photographs I had to work with. And the restoration work I had to do on bar ads. And um, it, it was a Herculean project. And, um, you know, I think it was important to bring out because it documents, it documents one city. Um, you know, it'd be great if sometimes somebody decides if anybody wants to do less call New York. Oh, and by the way, I have to correct you. It's not a thousand gay bars. It's a thousand and one. Yes. Um, so, you know, we, we would be delighted to, to publish it, but I, I, I think it's important because it, it, it tells our story. And if we don't tell our story, it won't be told. So our mission as a press is to, um, is, is we, we focus on overlooked LGBTQ voices. So we're a very small press. Uh, we're about two, a little over two years old. We've got uh, over 20 titles out and we, we, it is challenging. Um, and our, our mission is overlooked LGBTQ voices. So it has to be an LGBTQ writer and something that's tangentially LGBTQ linked. Um, and what people don't know is <clears throat> one thing I hear all the time is an author will contact us and they'll say, oh, our, um, I've heard from publishers, they really like it, but they don't know what the market is. And I understand that I'm retired. I come from a 42 year career in corporate technology marketing. And I understand that you need a market and um, we're driven by other things. I'm retired. Uh, so the business is doing well, but our mission is to bring these things out there. And so the way we're supported are people buying our books and the way our authors are supported are people buying our books. Yeah, and it's amazing to me. I mean, I have looked through uh, some of the titles. I've interviewed several of your authors already. Um, Rick Carlin just completed his second interview with me. The first one was um, over a year ago. It was after uh, Paper Cuts had come out and we talked back then. Um, I've interviewed uh, Owen Keenan, who is another um, author that has some incredible work out there. And I, I'm working on, I'm editing a new novel by Owen that's coming out. I think it's coming out in September. It's called Watch Me. It's about a guy from Chicago 
who gets dumped by his boyfriend, kind of uh, gets buffed up and becomes a porn star in uh, or uh, gets into a porn studio in L.A. And then there's like mystery and intrigue around it. Wow. Um, and of course, just recently, I interviewed uh, Suki, St. Suki Delacroix. And uh, he's got a whole bunch of books on your um, on your website that, that you've put out for him. Um, and he, of course, is one of the authors of, of Last Call Chicago. And he had some great stories to tell. It's just, but as I've said to him and I mentioned to Rick and so many other people, it's not just about Chicago and New York, though, or L.A. and San Francisco. I would be delighted to see somebody write about you know, the history of gay life in Wyoming or Idaho or wherever, because some of the most interesting stories come from the places that nobody knows about. As I mentioned earlier, you know, people talk about Studio 54 to death and they were only open for 15 minutes. I mean, they were, what, three, four years they were open and they were gone. And everybody has a Studio 54 story they want to talk about. But there are so many bars out there. Um, I interviewed a guy the other day. Um well, probably about two weeks ago, who owns a little bar in Milwaukee called This Is It. And that bar has been there 54 years serving the gay community, started out as a hole-in-the-wall wrinkle room, and now has doubled or more than doubled in size and is the most popular uh, weekend club in, um, in Milwaukee. And one of the investors there now is Trixie Mattel, the, uh, the dry queen. So to me, that was a much more interesting story than hearing yet another, you know, I went to limelight once and this is what happened um, because it's different. It's more of our history that's being lost. Well, you know, it's funny, uh, you know, I, I would have studio 54 doesn't even come into my mind as a gay place. I, I mean, gay people went there, right? But it, it doesn't, it would not, you know, I would say it was a mixed bar. Yep. I would have never called it a, a gay bar. Um, and I mean, I lived there right. during that period. I never had a desire to go there because it wasn't a gay bar. I mean, I had a very strong, even from the day I came out, I had a very strong sense of politics. And, you know, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to be, um, a novelty. I never viewed myself as a novelty. Right. I you didn't want to be the circus sideshow. Exactly. You know, I was a gay man and I wanted to be viewed as a gay man um, and not a novelty and not a curiosity. <clears throat> so, um, you know, and that might have been because I grew up in a minority as, you know, within a minority that, um, I, I suppose maybe I had a strong sense of, well, one doesn't necessarily have to fit in with the majority. So right. I don't know why that came about, but, you know, so we're working on another book. It's called uh, Widower 48 Seeks Husband, set in Minneapolis in the late 80s and 90s. And um, th there are many scenes that take place at the gay 90s in in which i'd been to once i visited the gay 90s which talk about disneyland um 
I'd been to that bar and uh, that author, Raymond Luzak is, uh, I mean, he's lived in uh, Minneapolis most of his life, but it's interesting that things are set within, you know, the, the, there are scenes set within the gay nineties. Um, so it, it really, you know, as I work with authors, we really have a rich culture. And I think that our culture, Stonewall's been documented. People have documented San Francisco. People have documented New York. But much of our culture has not been documented. Absolutely. I think you're spot on because there are all these other places where we we had our culture, we had our relationships, we came together and we supported each other. And that, you know, th there's this view that nothing happened between New York, San Francisco and Los Angeles. Right. And, and I know you were in New York City at the time of Stonewall. Um, you were what, an adolescent? Um, when that happened, but I, and I lived not far away in New Jer Jersey at the same time. And I don't remember at that particular time in, you know, 1969 of Stonewall having a huge impact on my thinking at that moment. You know, it, it wasn't until, until later when I became part of the gay community and I started to learn more about it, then it started to have some significance. But I think this myth that the day that Stonewall happened, everybody in Milwaukee and Seattle and Portland and Dallas and San Antonio, all of a sudden had an epiphany and their lives changed is, is just completely fabricated. Um, it, yeah, it, it is. And it's, it's a skewed view. And what's also skewed and gets lost and we really need to remember it. It was a riot. Right. It was, it was rioting. And so what you had were the right people in the right place at the right time in the right environment. And it was, it was like Stonewall provided the fuse to a movement. Uh, but it was happening for a while. So we have a book called Out of the Underground. Uh -huh. It covers, which is by St. Suki Delacroix, and it's a history of the gay movement as seen through the underground press because the mainstream press there was you know when stonewall happened there was nothing we were freaks you know we were not covered in the mainstream press other than for you know if it was something sensational uh but the underground press was covering our movement and there was a lot in the underground press um so I think our, I think our story is really skewed to the coast, and yeah, places like Milwaukee, places like you know Atlanta, there were things happening. Oh all yeah, place. and I think those are the forgotten pieces of our of our history. And I think one important example that kind of highlights this whole conversation is. Um, the story of the upstairs lounge in New Orleans. So it's two, it's 2022 now, six years ago, we had a tragic event that happened at Pulse in Orlando and 49 people were killed um, at a gay bar and it was everywhere. 
everybody on the planet knew within hours of that happening. And they kept mentioning it's the most um, devastating thing that ever happened in a gay bar. Most people killed, blah, blah, blah. But we never even referenced the fact that for 43 years before that, that record was held by a bar in New Orleans, which had 30 odd people who died. And nobody knew about it because even in New Orleans, with the building burnt to a crisp with people you know, their skeletons hanging out the windows, you know, just completely incinerated was a flash in the pan. It was on the, on the front page of the newspaper for, you know, five minutes and it was done. And so, and that was a huge event in our history. So if that was brushed under the carpet, you can only imagine how many other things we, you know, how many other stories have not been unveiled yet. Well, there is a marker on the ground. We, we, I've been to New Orleans. Yeah, I mean, since then, and there's a movie about it now too, and and numerous books. But for forty years, nobody knew about it. Well, you have ago. to, you have to understand um, that it wasn't very interesting because fags got what they deserved. Just like when AIDS started. And I was in New York. I mean, I left New York in 83, so it would have been the very early 80s. Nobody cared because it was fags that were dying. And, you know, they used terminology like when, you know, some woman, and I, I mean, I, I, I feel for her, she, I think through transfusion or something, innocent, vic innocent victims of AIDS, which implies that all gay men deserved what they got. Right. Because, you know, those were innocent victims, but the gay men were guilty victims right. of AIDS. So, you know, I think we need to challenge, and maybe that's why I started a publishing company. We need to call things what they are. We need to label things correctly because words have impact and words have meaning. And we have to use clarity in, in our speech. Um, you know, within the gay publishing, there are a lot of voices that don't get published, you know, and I think that marketing is a form of censorship. So you have excellent things out there, but they're not getting out there because there's quote unquote, no market for it. Um, and, you know, you were talking about people documenting, uh, you know, documenting their lives next year, 2024, we've just acquired, um, it's a journal, so a gentleman named Ross Terrell, who was fairly well known in when Nixon went to China. Ross had written a series of articles in the Atlantic about China, and uh, his articles were used by Kissinger to brief Nixon for his visit. And Ross provided the in-studio color commentary for Walter Conkright's On the Ground reporting when Nixon went to China. Ross kept a journal for a diary for 70 years. And there are entries about, you know, the politically powerful that he's socializing with, plus his life as an unapologetic gay man, though he wasn't really out. And he was going to China and Asia. So it's just remarkable reading his journal, how people Gay people have always been able to find each other in one way, shape, or form. Um, 
And I think it's a testament to our community and our tenacity that no matter what they've thrown at us, we've been able to connect, provide support and thrive. Absolutely. And I am so happy, like I said earlier, that you have undertaken this venture and um, you know, have a, a forum where so many of these stories can get out, whether they're historical in nature or they're for entertainment purposes, things that we can relate to that are coming you know, from gay authors that are being produced by a gay company, a gay press that's owned by gay people, operated by gay people is amazing. And I would strongly recommend that anybody that has any interest in gay stories at all, you know, visit rattlinggoodyarns.com. If you order the books from the website directly, my understanding is if you don't live in California, there's no sales tax. Is that correct? Correct. So anyone who lives in the other 49 states or elsewhere, there is no tax on your purchase if you purchase the book directly through their website. And free shipping. And free shipping. So what more can you ask for? Um, and they have a great catalog of, of gay books and a lot more stuff coming up. So take a look at that. And I want to thank you, thank you, Ian, for taking the time to talk about your your stories from New York and about your um, about your press and and all that. So thank you. Well, thank you. My pleasure. I'm normally a behind the scenes kind of guy. So uh, thank you for letting me get out in front. <laughs> well, we want to hear everybody's story. You know, it's not the stories of the bar owners and the you know, the bartenders are not the only stories in the world. Every single one of us has a story to tell about a gay bar experience or a gay cruising experience or some gay experience in their life. And, you know, it's not a complete history unless you include everything. So. Well, you're doing important work. So kudos to you. Thank you. That concludes another episode of the Gay Bar Archive show. For more information about this episode, or to find more episodes, visit gaybarchives.com.